Good morning, church. My name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here at North Sub. So glad to have um, those of you joining with us online. Grateful to have the opportunity to have a technology that allows people to worship with us at a distance. Um, and welcome everyone here, and a special welcome to our kids that are joining us for this family service. We're grateful for any time that our children can experience uh, the worship with us together. Uh, if you're new here, welcome. Please come find me after service. I'd love to have a chat with you. In fact, we're having a picnic in the back lawn. We call it Bring Your Own Lunch, and uh, you're all formally invited to, to my yard. Um, love to have you there. Love to just get some time to, to eat and hang out with one another. So feel free to, to hang out after service. The ad hominem, uh, bad company corrupts good character, is not a guarantee. After all, <clears throat> wouldn't that limit how we might share the gospel with anyone uh, if we were only able to do so with good company? But it certainly is possible that we might fall prey to this masking effect that happens within group mentality. This is similar to what we'll see today in our text, where Abimelech is rooted more in Canaanite culture than he is with the kingdom culture of God. Will you pray with me as we prepare to read God's word? Heavenly Father, we come to you because uh, you're a mighty God and you have a power that transcends um, time and space, cultural bounds. We pray that we would not fall prey to the cultures surrounding us, but that we would uphold to a kingdom culture and a kingdom culture only. We pray this in your name. Amen. We're going to be in the book of Judges today. In chapters 8, starting in verse 33, uh, we're going to see the rise of Abimelech, a fable told by Jotham, one of his siblings, and Abimelech's fall. It's a lot of text to go through, and we have a shortened family service, so you're going to want to turn there, and um, I will summarize uh, some portions of the text, but I'll also have a lot of the text on the screen so that you can follow along. Throughout this series, you've seen the image of the sin cycle, and here's another version of that sin cycle. Um, you may have seen this if you watched the Bible Project video that we put out in the beginning of the series. If you haven't, go look it up. It, um, Bible Project is a, a great organization, and this video would really help you um, tie together the messages that we've been sharing during this series and help you give a foundational understanding of what the book of Judges is all about. Now, the sin cycle works like this. The people sin, and then they're oppressed, and then they go through a period of repentance, deliverance, peace, and sin. Again, and the cycle repeats. But every time that this cycle repeats itself, the stories actually get worse and worse because the people and the leaders are drifting farther and farther from God. So when a new leader is raised, they're just a little less polished than the last leader was, and the leader before that, and the leader before that. It's like if you have the New Year's resolution to hit the gym because, you know, you just got to get those last five pounds off, right? And it's exciting in the beginning, but as time goes on, that excitement begins to wear off. So you go less and less, and eventually you stop working out altogether. And then the next year rolls around, 
another New Year's resolution, right? Do you, wear, do you weigh the same as you did the last year when you failed your resolution? Not necessarily. So you make it again. I'm gonna hit the, I'm gonna hit the gym, lose a couple more pounds. If you don't keep that resolution time after time after time, you're not starting in the same place as you were a couple years back. Well, the Israelites are a few reps into this cycle and their spiritual weight is starting to show. In fact, they're so spiritually overweight that in this story, they actually skip deliverance and peace. It's as if they forgot their New Year's resolution and ignored all of the $0 sign-up fees and instead bought a dozen donuts. We're going to see that this story is a little bit darker than stories we've read so far. And it's going to unfold like this. We're going to see the rise of Abimelech, a fable by Jotham, and the fall of Abimelech. Let's start in chapter 8, verse 33. As soon as Gideon passes, the Israelites turn back to worshiping the Baals and the Baal Berith, their god. They don't remember their god, and they do not show kindness to the house of Jerubbabel or Gideon. So the Israelites are well on their way back into this sin cycle. And you might be thinking to yourself, wait, I remember that Gideon had uh, defeated the Midianite army, so surely they remember that God was a part of that, and he won for them, right? Well, as Pastor Tim pointed out last week, they quickly changed their plans to include the numbers that were depleted by God to show that it was God really uh, winning for them. And then they follow that by sharing the glory of the victory with Gideon. So let's see how Gideon's son fared. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Abimelech's rise to power is unique in the book of Judges in that it's filled with deceit and bloodshed. Abimelech decides for himself that he should be in power, and the way to get there is through his mother, who was a concubine of Gideon. This speaks, uh, he speaks to the family, and he crafts an argument that couldn't sound any sweeter. He says something like this, you know, there's a lot of people that could rule over you, 70 in fact, but wouldn't it be better if just one of us did? Of course that would be true. You know, things would move a little bit faster if there was only one decision maker. Decisions would be made easier. We could get a lot done, right? Well, what if that one person was a relative of yours? You'd probably get some special treatment, don't you think? So, of course, they agree. And who wouldn't? It's easier to elect someone from your area, isn't it? Don't you feel kind of a sense of pride when someone from your hometown gets a little bit of recognition? And it's no wonder why laws against nepotism exist. It's so easy to show favoritism to family members. It's an easy trap to fall into. Abimelech's methods here are suspect. It may be just part of the reason why he's the first leader that we've read so far in Israel that was not raised by God, but instead is raised by men. Every other leader in Judges is called by God without seeking the leadership role. Abimelech, though, grabs it for himself without being asked. And his rise to power is not facilitated uh, by obedience to God, but instead by the funds of a false god. Did you catch that in verse 4? 
It's facilitated by the funds that are taken from the temple and by the blood of his half-brothers. So his father, Gideon, turned on his fellow Israelites. Abimelech turned on his own family. Some might say the apple has not fallen far from the tree. Others might say what one generation tolerates, the next accepts. So he takes away all of his siblings. He takes them out. And who would have thought that one man could be the source of so much contention? We learn from this to be cautious of following a leader simply because of some exterior skills they may possess. Abimelech is a crafty and charismatic person. He's able to convince people to follow him because of his logic and negotiation skills. But what he's lacking is character. So church, what kind of skills impress you in the leaders that you choose to follow? Are you more influenced by the world's priorities or by God's? If you want success at all costs, you might chase after well-spoken leaders, but you might abandon the Moseses of our time. You might want to look good. You might want to target people who are put together. They look sharp. Uh, maybe they drive the latest car. But you might abandon the John the Baptists of our time. Does your checklist for leadership qualities must-haves include articulate, organized, well-spoken, goal-oriented, driven? Not a bad list of traits to have. But by these alone, you might be looking at a Bimlex resume. If you check the list of leadership qualities like above reproach, self-controlled, sensible, gentle, respectable, hospitable, you might be looking at the resume of a godly person, according to 1 Timothy, Titus, 1 Peter. Lucky for us, God has grace. And he does in this story as well, as he saves one, Jotham, the youngest brother. He escapes this attack. Now, his name means the Lord is perfect or blameless. And his fable, which is next, is quite poetic, given that his name means the Lord is perfect, and um, we're going to have a contrast between him and Abimelech. Abimelech, standing for people that are reliant on their power and their might, and Jotham, standing for people who rely on the worship of God. Let's see what Jotham has to say about all this. Starting in verse 7, we read that Jotham survives, and instead of running away, which would be understandable because all of his brothers and sisters were just taken down. Instead of running away, he stands up on top of a mountain. And this mountain has some significance because it's actually the same mountain that Joshua proclaimed a blessing to the people from. You can go look at this story back in Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 through 35. But it's interesting that the mountain that used to be proclaiming blessings to the people is now proclaiming a curse. It at least seems that Jotham has the best interest of the Shechemites at heart because he says that he's holding out the hope that they might have a hearing with God, that God might listen to them. In his fable, the trees are listed as searching for a king to rule over them. Uh, the trees are asked, and some of them have something to offer. 
You see the olive tree, the fig tree, and the grapevine all have something that they can offer these other trees that are asking them to lead. There's oil, which honors. There's uh, the sweetness of fruit. The grapevine has wine and cheer. And yet, every single one of them turned down the offer for kingship. They understand something important. They understand the significance of doing what they were designed to do. That is not true of the bramble. The bramble accepts the invitation for kingship. A bramble is a short shrub, which has thorns all over it. Usually it grows in a pretty tangled mess. It's the kind of stuff that if you walked through, it would attach to all of your clothing and your socks, and it would just be a mess. It would get stuck on you. The bramble has nothing to contribute to the trees, and yet it accepts the proposal and even goes so far to say, hey, come take refuge in my shade. I feel like reading passages like this might be where Jesus got some of his log-in-your-eye humor. Because the bramble telling the trees to take shade is actually laughable. The trees would tower over even the largest of brambles. It'd be like this, for instance. I love soccer. I've been playing soccer since I was a kid. I played it through college. But it would be embarrassing for me to go up to a professional soccer player like Cristiano Ronaldo and say, hey, Cristiano, after practice, why don't you come over and I'll teach you a couple of soccer tips. Nothing I have to share with him would benefit his game. He would laugh at me. In the same way, Abimelech has nothing to benefit the people. What Jotham is trying to do in this fable is explained in the next couple of verses. He's pointing out how ridiculous it is that they chose Abimelech to be their king. Abimelech's not your guy. Abimelech is a bush trying to be a tree. So Jotham repeats what happened with the family. And he says that, well, you know, if you've acted honestly and faithfully, may God bless you. But we all know that they haven't. So he offers a warning that they will be burned for following such a bad bramble. After sharing this fable and its interpretation from the mountaintop, Jotham runs away, and immediately we begin to see the fall of Abimelech. We'll notice that his fall is as violent as his reign, which brings the, the fable of Jotham to life. Abimelech rules for three years, which is oddly short, but that's because it's what God intended. He sends an evil spirit to make sure of it. This is interesting. Commentators will note that this isn't an evil spirit like a demon, which could be understood if we just glanced through it. It's not like he's sending a demon. What it's more like is sending a spirit of ill will between him and the people. We might wonder why God would do such a thing. It's certainly not because he enjoys it. Rather, he hates, just hates how much Abimelech is hurting his people. He's leading the people literally and spiritually to death. God does not want Abimelech to be in leadership, and we can see why. So, because of the spirit of ill will between the two parties, the people begin to plot against Abimelech. And as they do, a man named Gil comes with his family, and he begins to question Abimelech's rule, saying, 
Who is Abimelech and who is Shechem that we should serve him? Isn't he the son of Jerubbabel? And isn't that his officer? He's not from here either. Are you to serve him under the men of Hamar, the father of Shechem? It's important for us to know what Gail is doing here because he's a native to Shechem and he's one of their descendants. This line of logic ought to sound familiar because it's the same line of logic that Abimelech used to fool the people. He persuaded them that he was a relative and because of that, because we're close, I should rule over you. Well, Gail is a stronger relative. So he's persuading them using the same tactics. He reminds them that though Abimelech may claim kinship to them through his mother, his identity and his nationality are actually claimed through his father. And he's probably right. Abimelech shouldn't be king. But Gael won't make a good king either. The king that these people need won't come for some time. But we'll get to that later. So Gael convinces the people, at least some of them, to turn against Abimelech. It seems as though Abimelech is at least, he's at least got a little bit of influence left as he holds to a small army and keeps his informant around. And since he's on this hook, uh, his informant gives him an edge when Gale decides to attack. <clears throat> this fight is short and Gale retreats. And as he does, the fight should be over, right? The rivalry between them is settled. Abimelech's clearly in the lead but his bloodlust drives him to go even further. He goes on a mad hunt. The next day, his rage drives him to attack the people of Shechem that are coming out of the city. Most commentators agree that there's a lot of foul play going on here because Gale's not mentioned in the text and neither are his men. So most likely what's happening is Abimelech is now attacking innocent bystanders. He ends up destroying the entire city and covering it with salt, a symbolic gesture, recognizing it as a barren wasteland, uninhabitable, kind of like a desert. He ends up hearing that a thousand people run to take shelter in a tower, taking shelter in the temple of El Bereth. He heads that way and he ends up lighting it on fire with giant logs and he asks his men, uh, to continue doing that with him. Now this temple and everyone in it ends up going in flames. And thus the first half of Jotham's fable comes to fruition as the bramble fire bursts forth from the king and consumes the cedars of Lebanon. There's something poetic happening here. And if we take just a second, I think um, we'll be able to recognize it. The temple's name here comes from El, who is a Canaanite god. And that Canaanite god is actually the father of Baal. Bereth means of the covenant. So if we put them together, this tower, El Bereth, is El of the covenant, or the father of Baal and his covenant. Do you remember how the men were paid off by Abimelech to follow him? That was from another temple in verse 4. The temple of Baal Bereth. It seems fitting that the money which is used to create a covenant between these people and Abimelech, remember Abimelech's name means my father is king, would then turn on him in a catastrophic tale 
in a closed Elbereth, the supposed father of Baal. Their covenant with a false god and half-siblings to betray, lie, cheat, and destroy is a covenant that has now come full circle as they betray, lie, cheat, and steal and destroy from each other. It's fitting, too, that this is the place where Gael and his men threw a party just a couple verses back, and now it's become their death trap. But Jotham's fable isn't over, and neither is this tale. Remember that Jotham predicted that Abimelech would be burned in turn by the citizens of Shechem. And after the destruction of this temple, he moves on to another city. And he camps against their tower, and he captures it. Again, the people are seeking asylum in this temple. And again, Abimelech plans to take it down. But something happens. Like an acne anvil falling from the sky and hitting wily coyote on the head, a nameless woman with apparently super strength throws the upper portion of a millstone off the roof and it hits Abimelech right on the head. To be struck down by a woman would have hurt Abimelech's manly pride, so he decides to ask his armor bearer to finish him off, lest anyone know that a woman got the best of him. And yet here we are, thousands of years later, recounting the tale. So per Jotham's fable, Abimelech is burned by his own ambitions and his lust for power and control. It's interesting that Abimelech's life is bookended by women. One, his mother, he shamelessly uses to seize power, and another, a nameless woman, he shamefully falls victim to. As one commentator beautifully puts it, Indeed, the story of Abimelech, the macho man, is framed by two women, the first who gave him life and the second who took it. Abimelech wanted so badly to live up to his name, my king is the father. But ultimately, his life bowed to the will of God, the true king and the true father. Those paying close attention may have noticed that for the entirety of our text, God is mentioned three times. In verse 22, and then 56 and 57. And each of these references are not God speaking. Rather, it's the writer kind of giving us a peek behind the curtain to let us in on what is happening from God's perspective. So why is God silent? for all of this chaos and destruction? Why are we just given a theological glimpse of what God is doing? This story is a picture of a society and a ruler whose desire is only to push out God entirely out of the picture, unworshipped and unconsidered. But it doesn't mean that God is not working. When God is mentioned, we see that he's working against Abimelech. It's beautifully uh, done, actually. If you read these two together, it's as if you can see God's intention. God sent an evil spirit, and in this way, God brought back Abimelech's evil. Usually, God is working to save Israel from an outside force, but now God has to save Israel from itself. Given that every time Abimelech's father is mentioned here by name, He's using the name 
Jerubbabel, not Gideon. And each time the writer refers to God, he uses his, gen- his generic name. You'd see that in the original text. He uses the word Elohim. It's clear that to the writer, at least, this is a picture of Israel when they've been totally and completely canonized. They're completely wrapped up in their surrounding culture. And there's no influence of their God in their life. This is an image of the destruction of what happens when people do what's right in their own eyes. By now we might be thinking, okay, so God was working against Abimelech, but why did it take so long? Why did he allow so much damage to happen? Well, if we zoom out a little bit, we might gain some perspective. Abimelech's reign in Judges is the shortest of any and will be the shortest of any. Just three years. Clearly a sign of grace from God on his people. And immediately after his reign, two more decent leaders are raised. Tola, the first minor judge to be credited with saving Israel from what or from whom we don't know. Maybe Tola was saving Israel from itself since Abimelech left it in such a mess. Tola leads the people for 23 years and Jer led the people for 22 years. So God does give them grace. Grace by ending this vicious leadership short. Grace by giving two leaders which will allow a time of peace. With carnage like this from start to finish and God seemingly absent, we might leave this story feeling like there's not much to salvage. You know, from Jotham's perspective, it must have been pretty hard. All of his siblings taken away from him. He runs away, and for three years, it seems like Abimelech doesn't get what he's due. Maybe he gets away with it. But Jotham may not have known that God was working in the background to work strife into his leadership. And sometimes we may feel like God is silent, but even if we feel that way, he's working in the background. God's judgment for many in this story actually went unseen. But we have the advantage of a divinely inspired narrator to tell us all of the events in this story unfolded to God's intended outcome. In the present, we don't have that same advantage. We don't have a narrator in our mind telling us exactly what God is doing. So it can be hard to let go of that control. But whether or not we acknowledge it, God is in control of our affairs. This is the first time in which the Judges, the book of Judges, where God gave the people what they wanted, a leader like Abimelech. And it ends terribly. He gives them a king that they deserve and that they earned. Abimelech was a king that ruled only for himself. But what they needed and what we need is a king that rescues us from ourselves. And that king is King Jesus. Abimelech ruled with a force, thrusting his will upon others. Jesus rules with grace submitting his will to the Father. Abimelech ruled only for himself, taking the life of others in the process. 
Jesus ruled so that all who believe in him may have eternal life. Abimelech lit the tower of his enemies on fire in the, in the namesake of revenge. While Jesus took the pain and punishment of his enemies and took on the fire of hell. Abimelech falls to the weight of a millstone and to a pierced body, ashamed and belittled. But Jesus, after having his body pierced and the weight of sin of the world falling on him, rises from the grave, victorious, and is glorified at the right hand of our Father. Our big idea today is that though we may not see God working, let us trust and hold firm to the righteous hand of God. Friends, if you don't know Jesus, he's a king like no other. And he works for you because of his love for you. And he wants to know you deeply. If you don't know this King Jesus, will you open, your, uh, open up your heart to the suffering servant? Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you don't lead us to destruction and you don't leave us to our own desires. I confess that I often find myself wanting things that are not good for me, but your plan is good for me. I pray that you give in each one of us a heart that desires godly things, that will cast away the old things, and that will look to leadership as you do, that will look for souls that are on a single track towards you, and will point us back to Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I want to walk us through uh, a short but powerful sermon response. I think it's important for us after hearing a message like this that we pray over ourselves, over our community, over our friends and family, that we may not be subject to culture, but that we only subject ourselves to a kingdom culture. So as we've learned um, from Abimelech's story, it's very easy for our identity to be rooted in something other than the true living God. And if so, if we fall into that, we allow ourselves the, the capacity and the risk of being swept away into those influential forces. So as followers of Jesus, we want nothing more than for others to know about the love and the grace that King Jesus has for them. We want to be a positive, influential force for those around us so that they can know how the love of Jesus can change a life, and how the love of Jesus can offer eternal life. The enemy doesn't want that to happen. The enemy would rather us all to be distracted or taken away by other influences. So today we're going to pray. We're going to speak God's power into our situations, whatever they may be. And I'm going to ask you to do something that might seem a little uncomfortable. It's not common in Western societies to pray this way, but it is very common around the world. I'm going to ask us all to pray out loud together, whatever it is on your heart. So you might have a name. You might have a family or a friend, um, a family member or a friend that you've been thinking about that you just really hope um, 
comes to know the Lord. Or you may be battling some influences in your life and want to overcome those or be a positive influence in certain groups in your life. Whatever it is that God's laid on your heart, we're going to pray those out loud for about 60 seconds. So I'm going to put you on the clock, start strong, and I'll cut us off. In about 60 seconds, I will end us in prayer and the worship team will come up. Let us pray together now. Heavenly Father, you know our hearts, you know our desire for you, and you know that so often we get in the way of ourselves. We pray that you would send your spirit to guide us, that as we are in the world, we would not be of it, and that your spirit would give us a firm foundation to share and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Would you protect us as you do so? And may all the names that are spoken here today and the ones that are unspoken, would you intercede on our behalf? Would your spirit move in their lives? And would you do a great work in your name? Amen. If you feel led, please join me in reading aloud a prayer um, in response to what we've heard today. Let's pray. Merciful God, you guide us along the right path to honor you, but like lost sheep, we often drift from your way. We often get distracted by the values of this broken world. We often follow our own selfish desires. O oh Lord, through your grace in Christ Jesus, forgive us. Through your Holy Spirit, help us to follow you. Help us to serve you in the world and reflect the love of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.
hear this good news from 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Let's stand and continue to pray um, that God would help us to not be distracted by the influences of the world, but that um, Jesus would be our, our greatest love.